Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio uh, Live with a, a special pop-up interview with Bramwyn Jeffries, who's the education editor at the BBC. Absolutely amazing to be able to have this conversation um, with Bramwyn. There's been so much happening in education. We can't obviously call it, mm. cover it all in the next 30 minutes, but we're going to try to dig into some of it and, and hopefully ask the questions that matter from, from teachers um, and from the people involved in, in the profession at the moment. Just before we kick off, Big shout out to our sponsor on the show tonight, which is John Cat Educational Publishing. If you want to uh, get involved and get your professional development off to a quick start, you can uh, go to the John Cat website, johncatbookshop.com. Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off all books from the John Cat website. Um, so, Branwen, welcome. Um, it's, it's great to be here. I, I mean, I, I was just reflecting, it's, you know, I have an ongoing dialogue with teachers and people sometimes, you know, message me or text me or, you know, grab my elbow when, when I'm <laughs> passing through their school. But it's great to have the chance to have a more relaxed conversation and to reflect on some of the work that we do. Amazing. Well, listen, in case anybody doesn't know, um, do you want to just introduce yourself really briefly to everybody in terms of what you actually do? So... I'm Brahman Jeffries. I'm the education editor for BBC News. I'm actually the first education editor for BBC News. It was a, a post that was created in 2015, which is when I took it up, um, in recognition of the importance of education, uh, children and young people to the BBC. If you think of everything we do outside news, see BBs, all the um, educational material, all the revision stuff on bite, bite size, and also uh, increasingly also some resources for teachers as well. So even though there have been many fantastic people who had reported on education over the years, including the late Mike Baker, who some people might uh, remember, there was a feeling that in creating an on-air editor post, which is what my job is, you could give it a bigger push. So my remit is to report on education across all of the main national platforms for the BBC. So that's TV, radio, and I also write for online. And actually today I've been doing all three of those as well as putting out loads of stuff on socials as well. And this. <laughs> and this at the end of a long day. Uh, my, yeah. day my day started at this... Uh, computer at about six o'clock this morning um, oh, so that I could go live on uh, the Today programme on Radio 4 at 6.30. You must never get bored though. Oh, oh absolutely never bored. I mean, I love my job and education is endlessly fascinating because it's about people. 
Um, so it's about the kids, it's about the teachers. Um, actually, our team covers childcare, um, schools, colleges, further education and higher education. So it's an insanely big <laughs> brief. We can't do everything, but it does mean there's always interesting stuff to delve into. So prioritising becomes really important. In the last, let, let's dig straight into the conversation. In the last sort of year or so, obviously, one of, if not the biggest story in education has been um, the death of Ruth Perry and mm. the subsequent events that have sort of transpired from there, um, from that event, including the inquiry and the results of that inquiry. Now, you know, you've been heavily involved in, in that from, you know, from the outset. You, you've almost become sort of, you know, you, you can tell me whether you think this is true or not, but I, I feel like, you, you know, you have been that chief reporter on that story. You know, people sort of recognise and associate you with reporting on that. Obviously, you're the education editor at the BBC, so partly that's true, but it almost feels like you, you know, you've been there, haven't you? And, you know, what were your experiences, you know, of going through that for the last year in close proximity with Julia Waters, the sister of Ruth Perry, with all the other people involved, you know, can you summarise it? Can you tell me anything in terms of your personal experience of it all? Well, I think two things shaped it really early on. Um, I was actually away on holiday when Professor Julia Waters, Ruth Perry's sister, sister, first spoke out locally. And I came back a few days later and I had this pile of messages saying, you've got to look at this. Um, actually, messages from people connected to Julia Waters trying to get in touch with me to connect us. And so very early on, I went um, to see her privately. So just me um, to go and have an entirely private conversation to hear what she had to say. And it was compelling with all the details that we know came out through the inquest also at that stage to really think about what it would mean for them as a, a family. So it was a conversation in which I tried to be very honest about what it would be like if she really wanted to step into the national media to talk about her family's loss and what they wanted to see changed, because inevitably you give up a little bit of your privacy. So, for example, it was inevitable, it would mean there would television cameras outside the inquest when family and friends were arriving. So I thought it was really important to be very honest about what the, the impact might be um, and to hear how she felt about that and give her some thinking time about that. So that was one of the things that shaped our decision, um, meeting this person who was a form formidable uh, advocate for what had happened to her sister was very, very clear about the fact that Ruth Perry had had no previous mental ill health in any significant way at all. Um, but who also, I could tell, was resolute and determined and very resilient and was determined to keep speaking out. But that on its own, I think, probably wouldn't have got us to engage as fully and as, as quickly. The other thing that happened was I wrote a piece um, actually, just the day before I met Julia Waters, which was uh, a piece reflecting on what the mood music was around Ofsted, how schools felt coming out of the pandemic, 
why people maybe felt that um, Ofsted didn't always fully capture everything around schools. And that was a piece written drawing on dozens of conversations I'd had with people uh, throughout the pandemic and afterwards. And the piece went up um, late afternoon on the BBC News website. That's quite late in the day. Um, so normally the, the figures would, would be lower in terms of people reading it. Within hours, it had been read by one and a half million people and was being reshared widely on, on socials. And then teachers started getting in touch with us. Uh, teachers and head teachers contacted us with their own experiences, including some absolutely heartrending experiences from head teachers who felt um, that they had been put through a process in which their school in some cases had gone from say good to inadequate to good again within the space of one term. And what I have to hold in my mind all the time is um, not just teachers, that's not primarily actually our audience. Our audience is everyone, parents, grandparents, people working in, in other businesses, um, as, as well as the teaching profession. But it was clear that there was a huge groundswell of feeling and that in a way what Julia Waters had done was to lift the lid on that by beginning to speak out. And other strands and particularly some of the stuff around um, head teachers' mental health and the stress attached to the current system um, began to sort of flow out of that and became in the end actually a very important part of the documentary uh, film that we made, The Death of a Head, which went out at the end of, of the inquest. So it was part of a conversation, a conversation with the family and um, establishing that uh, what it would involve, what we would ask of them if we covered it and also what, what it might mean for their privacy, but also a conversation that was happening in public, but also in private in the information that head teachers and teachers and also school governors and parents were sending to us. Going back to that that first meeting with with Julia Waters, did you feel nervous going into that? And and you know, as a journalist, as a person, were you sort of was that like this is this is a big conversation, or was it just this is another conversation I've done lots with politicians and everybody else? And 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 during that conversation. It's, it almost feels like you were offering sort of, it was almost like safeguarding sort of, you know, advice or guidance. I mean, is that something she asked you or is that something that is just a standard conversation that would take place? I think if you're dealing with a, a family that is, uh, or an individual that is in the midst of very deep, deep grief, um, that you have a duty of care, and a lot of journalists would say this actually, you have a duty of care to um, treat them fairly and responsibly. Um, I think it's fair to say that early on the family had a mixed experience of that, which is why in the end um, they decided to mainly speak to the BBC until the end of the inquest. And some of that is about um, being very honest and fair and it included being very honest with Julia Waters that sometimes we would be reporting other views that she might strongly disagree with because that's my professional obligation to stand back and think what are the different voices in this debate. But I think if you meet people 
it's partly about being a decent human being, isn't it? Just you're meeting people in difficult circumstances. And over three decades of being a journalist, um, I've had to do that a number of, of times, whether it's in the wake of a, a terrorist incident or um, some scandal that comes out and you're meeting people when they're exceptionally vulnerable. And I think it's important to be honest. That's what sits well with me. It also is what fits within our editorial guidelines, which are quite explicit. And I think particularly if you spoke to most documentary makers who work with people over a very long period of time, um, they would say that trust and honesty is absolutely uh, essential in dealing with a family in that situation. Um, and that includes being honest about your own professional boundaries and keeping where necessary, you know, holding information from different people in confidence at the same at the same time, because that's what our job requires. Can you give an example? Like, how should education media, because there's lots of different education media, how how should education media cover these huge events with, with sensitivity and courage? And, and can you give an example maybe of a time during this last year where you as education editor have had to grapple with a story or, or something you've done where, where you said, well, we're going we're gonna to do this, but it's been a hard sort of like we've had to have conversations about it and maybe it's been a difficult one. Well, I'm going to give you two examples, just going back briefly to, to the Ruth Perry story. One of the things that we held in mind was the Samaritans media guidelines about the reporting of any death by suicide, which most major media organisations um, try and abide by. And those guidelines set out some very clear, broad principles. One is that it's very hard to um, extrapolate from, from an individual person's case. It's really hard to know what was in the mind of any uh, individual in their darkest moment. But also that we never, for example, um, talk about the means of death um, because there's evidence that comes from a, a wealth of research that that is not helpful to people. So one of the things that we had to um, triage and think very carefully about editorially in the Ruth Perry case was the distinction between the individual story and what the family wanted to say very clearly about how they felt Offset had contributed to Ruth Perry's death, something that was vindicated ultimately by the inquest. But also um, we consulted, I spoke to a, a couple of different eminent experts in terms of researching mental health and suicide to think about population-wide risk. Okay, what, what, what is, the, how do we weigh up one individual, but also the effect across a whole system of head teachers and what the potential risks are risks are there. So that's that's one example, but also the story I've been doing today. So um, all of today I've been covering um, some of the pressures that are currently facing schools that were built under the private finance initiative. So these PFI schools, there are about 900 across England, uh, have seen their charges go up because inflation has been going up. Now, the contracts, a lot of the contracts uh, include quite hefty non-disclosure agreements. Um, and although head teachers aren't in those contracts, they're often parties to them because of the fact that the school pays. 
So we had long and careful discussions with the head teachers who have done interviews with us and some of the others who've shared information with us uh, about how they felt about that. Were they okay um, with, you know, speaking out publicly where some people might have felt that they couldn't because of the confidentiality clauses. And then all of that work has to go through two processes in the BBC. One is that we have ethical advisors, like a committee of editorial ethical advisors. So we, we talk to them about how, how, how can we be fair in this, getting responses from everyone who is involved maybe in a particular situation around a school. Um, but we also, of course, like every big media organisation, we have duty lawyers who are on duty 24 hours a day, uh, who we can email uh, and ring up, and they will look with a different kind of eye. So there's two, there's the process about fairness and is this, are we reporting to the BBC standards? And that includes any duty of care to individuals involved or vulnerable children. And on the other hand, um, you might be thinking about, well, what is the legal jeopardy here? Are we reporting within the law? Uh, would a court of law think that we're reporting fairly? Mm. Um, and just to give you one last example, about a year ago, I made uh, a panorama about school attendance that followed three teenagers. The process of finding and getting um, agreement from the teenagers and their families to speak took months. Uh, and actually, in some cases, um, the children were assessed by an educational psychologist, for example, to make sure, although they were teenagers, that they fully understood what they were consenting to yeah, yeah, yeah. and that they were going to be OK through this process and talking about their mental health or, in one case, talking about a, a bereavement. Were they going to be OK when yeah. that finally went on TV and and how would they manage it Adam has messaged in one of our sort of listeners and, and uh, uh, Teachers Talk Radio uh, team member. And he mm. said, I'd like to know what Bramwin thinks could be done to help students discern between fact and fake news. Um, obviously, Adam's an MFL teacher. Um, you know, lots of teachers sort of watching and listening. How big an issue do you think this is and what can be done about it from, from a media point of view? Uh, I think it's absolutely massive and it's something to really uh, hold in mind as we go through what will be an intensely political year, the potential for um, jeopardy around deep fake videos or around something which appears to be uh, maybe an ordinary citizen but is in fact part of a, a campaign or um, comes from a particular political perspective, and that isn't immediately obvious. So I think some of it is about encouraging um, encouraging students to it, to consume a very wide range of media. So not just to look at um, platforms which maybe affirm their own beliefs, but to have that open-mindedness to, to look across different news media Every day, I will look probably at six or seven newspapers, social media. Um, I look at what rival media companies are, are doing. That's an intrinsic part of my balanced diet as a journalist. But I think you can do a small version of that yeah. uh, with, with, with pupils. You know, it's that knowingness. You know, what is the editorial stance of 
this particular media outlet or of this particular person? Um, where are they coming from? And just that basic digital literacy um, about looking at websites. So who, who does this website belong to? Um, who's it registered to? Who's who's paying for this? If it's a, a, a socially driven campaign that is maybe maybe funded, and I think it is fundamental to democracy to have those conversations. And that's why, of course, as a professional journalist, I would argue that there is, amidst the the very florid and busy conversations that that exist across social. There is also a place for professional journalism, even if it doesn't tell you what you want to hear. I mean, there is that sort of threat, if you like, to, you know, you see it on X a lot, for example, from mm. Elon Musk saying, you know, mainstream media is dead. You know, we it's the voice of the people, you know, listen, just sort of get your news from Twitter sort of sort of thing. Right. Um, and I guess a lot of a lot of young people, you know, they might be sort I don't know what your data tells you, but it seems like a lot of them are sort of getting their news from TikTok or just flicking through videos or from X, they just scroll down a feed or whatever. So it is important, isn't it, to sort of educate them on that. And how, how do you, I mean, do are you able to combat that in any way by sort of saying, you know, like you've just explained to me, you know, about the process you go through, maybe, maybe people aren't aware of that. Maybe, you know, there isn't a lot of education around that. I think um, some of it, some of it is beholden on us as as, as media organisations. The BBC has set up something called BBC Verify, which is bringing together a lot of our expertise around data analysis, geolocating video, um, looking at where something might have originated, um, doing sort of deep research around the use of images uh, to sort of see where they where they originally came from. So there's definitely a role for mainstream media in that. I also think that um, people's habits change throughout their their time. I think we are in a, in a process of huge technological change. We know that loads of people now, millions of people, get their news from streaming services, from podcasts, from uh, from for for us from the BBC app, and that's an easy easy way to check something. And I also know that if you look at a lot of the uh, academic research around people's interest in, in different subjects, it changes as we go through life. So if you are in your um, mid to late 20s or early 30s, your interest in schools in a different way as a parent of a child or your interest in the availability of childcare is going to go up massively suddenly uh, something maybe you didn't give a second thought to when you were 19, 20 and you had other things on your on your mind. So we do quite a lot of um, thinking about uh, search engine optimization, about what headlines really appeal to people. And we know that where there is some emotional authenticity in the story where it can feel more like a people person-to-person -person story, you know, you're hearing about maybe another mum who's struggling to get SEND support or uh, another parent who's trying to juggle childcare and work, that if we can make it relatable in our storytelling and it's constantly evolving, that that can really help engage people, particularly in online platforms, uh, where the possibilities of how we tell our stories are, are really, really changing. 
We're now moving moving towards the end. So I want to ask you just a sort of one question about, you know, obviously last year, 2023, the biggest story was undoubtedly sort of Ruth Perry and Ofsted and, and the inquest. What do you think will be the biggest story? I mean, obviously that we don't know yet, but just sort of with your experience and intuition, is there anything bubbling that you think, I mean, obviously it's an election year. Do we have anything that you think is going to be the big one for 2024? For education, well, I certainly think um, the the political parties will compete on things like childcare. When it comes to schools, if I was going to look over maybe the next couple couple of years, I would say the long term state of of England's school buildings. We've seen that bubble up with RAC, but there are other schools that have different problems. For example, historic asbestos that at some point are going to have to be dealt with. Teacher recruitment. Well, only enough, Bram, I'll answer you there. My school I currently teach in, we're, we're actually currently teaching in the temporary building because mm. of asbestos. Mm. Fortunately, the, this school has actually just this week been awarded um, a new build, which will probably take three to four years. So it'll be another sort of temporary building in the interim, but still good news. But I'd imagine that, like you just said, there'd be a lot of schools out there like that. And it's got to wash through the system, hasn't it? I mean, a huge number of schools that were built in the 60s and 70s and 80s have got some of these materials in them. So, yes, definitely school buildings, teacher recruitment and retention. I think, you know, the worrying shortage in some um, STEM subjects in particular is going to be uh, something that is going to keep on bub bubbling up. And particularly when does that come maths. to a head, though? Because it feels like you've report you must have reported that about ten times in the last ten years. Teacher recruitment and retention, terrible crisis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When does it actually come to a head? Is it is there going to be a tipping point where it comes to a head? Because at the moment, yes, we talk about supply issues. There's, there's still, you know, when when does it actually come to a tipping point? So I think there are a couple of things. Yes, it's been it's been something that's been rumbling on on and off. And actually, teacher recruitment is quite cyclical. If the rest of the economy feels very insecure, more graduates will go into to teaching. And of course, some of them will decide they love it and, and stay. But as the NFER has pointed out, there's a massive challenge post pandemic. If you are doing a white collar job, loads of people can work from home for a couple of days a week. That is not an option for a teacher. You're in there full on from first thing in the morning, um, dealing in the case of a secondary with hundreds of, of, of kids and, you know, lessen the intensity of teaching and lessons throughout the day. So I think long term, there's going to have to be some really careful thinking about um, how we make teaching attractive. And that that's a challenge to all, all parties. And the other thing which I think will be very slow burn and we might not get to until after the next election is uh, where next for what kids learn in school. Um, we try to avoid the use, word, the use of the word curriculum in our reporting because it really? doesn't necessarily connect, doesn't necessarily connect with, with parents. Uh, it's, right. not, it's, not, it's not a word that people use. You would not hear, hear the word curriculum spoken generally at a bus stop in a pub at a footy match. Um, please tell me if, if you do, and then it's probably a teacher standing next to you. <laughs> but I think there are quite interesting questions. There was a very interesting Lords uh, Committee report about the secondary um, curriculum. We've got competing ideas about that going into the election, so there could be quite a feisty debate about that. Um, but I also think there are other slow, slow burn issues like the 
ongoing pressure around special educational needs and disabilities, which whoever wins the next election, they're going to really have to think about provision and how it's resourced and how it's planned and how you get the balance right between um, meeting the needs of children in specialist provision and accommodating that within mainstream schools and, and what can be done to make it work. So in terms of schools, I think those are some of the big things. Um, and the other issue, which I think we may see no political party particularly wanting to talk about very much this year, but is really important in terms of destinations, is what happens in the long term to further education funding. It's always felt a, a, you know, financially a little bit like the poor relation of schools and also university funding. Um, tuition fees have been frozen for pretty much, apart from that £250 that was added on for a decade now. So where do we go next with that? And how do we fund the universities that we want? And how do we get young people to the destinations that they need to get to, to, to go on and have a fulfilled life? Because that's what education does, is it opens doors for you and, op and opportunities for you. Uh, and that doesn't have to be through university. It's whatever's right for, th for that young person. Definitely. Raman, it's been fantastic. Thanks ever so much for giving up your time this evening to talk to us here. It's, it, we've, we've all really enjoyed it. So thank you ever so much. And hopefully talk again soon and um, keep, up the, keep up the good work. My pleasure. Bye. Um, that was BBC Education Editor Bramwyn Jeffries in conversation with me. Um, it's been great. Um, listen, if you've got reflections or comments on anything that you've heard here this evening, you can just tweet us at TT Radio Official. Get involved in the conversation that way. Perhaps you actually want to conduct some interviews. Um, if you do, um, become a host, you know, get involved on Teachers Talk Radio. You know, we would love to hear from you. Just drop us an email at info at ttradio.org and um, we can we can send you an info pack or whatever you need to, to sort of get involved in what we're doing here. Um, and finally, just a shout out to uh, John Cat again, who sponsor our shows on TTR. Um, they really support the work that we're doing um, and we really appreciate everything that they do. And one of the things you can do is you can visit their website, johncatbookshop.com. You can benefit from 20% off all of their books, any and all, uh, by using the code JCTTR2324 uh, for 20% off any books, all in any books that you order through the John Cat website. Uh, TTR, we are live in an hour with Ray. So if you want to listen to that one, you can catch that on the TTR website, ttradio.org. Just click listen live at the top and you can listen to Ray, uh, who is an amazing host. Um, who will be uh, broadcasting live in about 59 minutes. So it's been wonderful. And I'll be back at 7.30 next Monday night for my show as normal. Um, and see you all soon. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR. 2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.